Hey, what's up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here. It's Friday. Centered from Reality Podcast. Here in Reno, Nevada, it's been snowing all day. All day. Last night, roads got really icy. Chaos out there. I took an Uber to go get dinner last night, and about halfway through the ride, the driver was like, yeah, I don't even have four-wheel drive. And I was like, oh, God. Oh, God. Uh, luckily, we made it. Made it to dinner. Uh, made it back as well. But maybe wasn't the best idea to go out for dinner last night, but here we are, still alive. So anyways, holy crap, like the weather, I'm looking right now at a road closure map of California and and uh, western Nevada, and pretty much all along the Sierras, there's either closures or delays. Then if you go into the Central Valley, there's just like exclamation, point, uh, exclamation marks, hazard lights, Jesus, uh... I think it's safe to say the groundhog was correct about there being another month or whatever of winter. At this rate, you know, we're going to be stuck into winter until June. I get to get to drive up to Truckee in California, my old my old home tomorrow. And uh, despite storms in the forecast, storms now, the interstate's closed. The International Ski and Snowboard Federation is still having the Tahoe Cup at Palisades, formerly Squaw Valley. And it'll have a men's slalom, giant slalom. Should be fun to watch, but it's going to be a shit show. I mean, road closures, blizzard, whiteout conditions. Sometimes I wonder if the municipalities, and here, here's a little politics, public policy side of all of this. Sometimes you wonder what the end goal is for the Tahoe area because they have too many short-term rentals. They, there's no limits on the short-term rentals, so you have... You have a shortage of housing for people that work in the area, but then you also have a shit ton of people coming up every weekend for these short-term rentals. You also only have like one or two roads in and out, so if you had a fire or a storm and there's a closure, then everything shuts down. Also because of this, locals struggle to get around. You have fire danger, and then they keep expanding these ski resorts. Then you have the Icon Pass, which has pretty much been better priced and has also expanded the availability of places people can go to ski and so you mix all of these and you have a chaotic tahoe Truckee area and then they put this uh world cup event on top of it this weekend with the storms and because people like money they're not going to cancel it or delay it or anything and so it's going to be a mess and uh as of now i'm going to get to be involved in that mess i'm going to be up there tomorrow so wish me luck godspeed and my rants aside because i if this was more of a localized podcast or more like a local podcast on the area, I could really dive into a lot of the issues pressing this area, a lot of the public policy issues, public administration issues. Maybe one day I, I'll bring on a guest to talk about that or something. But anyways, yeah, storms are crazy right now. Here in Reno, it's snowed more than I can remember. And <laughs> the best part is, is uh, Southern California, which this time of year is usually pretty mild, has its first blizzard warning since 1989. I was talking to one of my buddies who lives in the Altadena area, and he was saying that it's in the 30s. <laughs> so I don't know what's happening to the world anymore. There's just so many crazy news stories, and it just seems like everything's in free fall. So anyways, I want to talk about mainly today the Fox News relationship with the GOP. And the revelations of Kevin McCarthy giving Tucker Carlson exclusive footage of January 6th. I also want to talk about how our buddy Mike Lindell, Mike Pillow, 
Mr. Pillow, whatever you want to call him, how he may sue Kevin McCarthy. And I actually kind of agree with Mike Pillow. Also, then I want to talk about just the grifters, swindlers, opportunists in East Palestine following, you know, the train derailment and the toxic mess that we're seeing now. And I also <laughs> I also learned that Rudy Giuliani has a podcast called Common Sense, which is a great name for the podcast because it features the likes of Carrie Lake, Steve Bannon, Mike Lindell, all the people that I think are the definition, the epitome of common sense. But before we get going, I did want to say uh, I was I had to go on the treadmill today on my break to get a run in. I hate the treadmill, but I have a Spanish exam in a few weeks, so I've been you know watching a lot of Spanish documentaries, uh, which are fast and out. They use a lot of older language, so it's good to kind of just test my listening skills since I'm not speaking Spanish on a daily basis anymore. And I was watching one on the Spanish Civil War while I was running, and it's just because I've read a lot about the Spanish Civil War, and I've talked about it a lot on this podcast too. But to actually watch like footage and documentaries, they had a colorized one that was that was that was from a Spanish documentary company, and I was watching it today, and it was just interesting just to really put images and videos to all of it. It really kind of just changed things a lot, and it's. It's, it's interesting because I, I've followed, I mean, I, I've really covered and read and studied a lot of the lead up to the Spanish Civil War and what happened during the Spanish Civil War, but I watched a documentary segment on kind of what happened afterwards, and I mean, Franco just ruined Spain after the war ended. Uh, he made a promise to Mussolini to pull out the League of Nations, pull out of the League of Nations, and... Spain kind of became this autocratic, isolated country that kind of had relationships with Nazi Germany, kind of had relationships with Portugal, but generally was just pretty isolated. And he wanted to kind of modernize Spain, but he also wanted to make Spain self-reliant and able to produce all the necessary goods. And it kind of backfired at first because it led to bread being made with corn. They called some of these breads like black bread. Um, Spanish tortillas are like a national food. And people had to eat these tortillas without egg, which is just a, a barbaration, a travesty. And it all clicked to me why, like during my time in Spain, you see all these older generations, like the people 70 plus mainly, and they're all tiny, all really tiny. And, and I mean, literally tiny, like small, just don't look overly developed. And that's a generalization, but I think it's fairly true. And you kind of just go, hmm, this all kind of checks out because early on, Franco just didn't get a lot of nu- nutrients to the population and didn't really take care of the population, and a lot of people suffered. And it was just interesting to read about what happened after the uh, the Republicans lost the Civil War. You know, uh, they used football stadiums and bull rings for as concentration camps. A lot of people fled to Biarritz, which is in the south of Spain, kind of Basque Spain, I guess you could say. And you just hear about the suppression of languages, like the Basque language, which is called Euskera, uh, or Catalan, or Gallego. And it's just fascinating that period where Franco somewhat starts to moderate the regime away from fascism into authoritarian just isolationism. But you also just see the country really suffer. And then he has this vote of succession, which basically means that he's dictator for life and creates a new Spanish monarchy. Fascinating stuff. And you also learn about how the Cold War actually helped Spain um, stay away from being completely isolated. 
Um, the distractions of the Cold War helped Franco find new alli- allies, sorry, like um, the Perón family in, in um, Argentina, which was kind of a Nazi sympathizing regime. Anyways, I could rant all day, but you just hear about some of the realities of what happened after the Spanish Civil War. And as radical as some of the anarchists and communists were, and of course it was bad that Stalin helped fund the Spanish Civil War for the left, you go, God, it would have been better if the Republicans won and there was some sort of revolution. Because even as leftist as some of these people were, the right that took over just suppressed everything and made life really bad. So, hey, I learned something on the treadmill today. Not great stuff, but I'm happy to say... uh, I kept myself entertained on the treadmill. So, anyways. So, last week, we talked about Fox News, right? And just the troubling revelations that didn't surprise any of us. Now, I would argue they would surprise a Fox News viewer. But a lot of the Fox News viewers will never hear about this. Or if they do, it'll be a conspiracy or something. And I believe it was on the Bulwark yesterday podcast... um, the guest whose name is escaping me that was talking with Charlie Sykes said something to the effect of even if you showed a Fox News viewer the articles about Fox knowing that they're, that all these election lies were fake, the viewer wouldn't really care because they would say, oh, that's probably just some fake news story from the left or, you know, this was made up or they were taken out of context. Like, Ironically, it seems like Fox News has almost like primed their viewers to not believe any criticism of Fox News. I've noticed this in my own personal life, talking to Fox News viewers. If you ever criticize like Tucker Carlson or Sean Hannity, they say, oh, that's probably not real. And so I think the sad thing is, is that all these revelations about Fox News, if you talk to a hardcore viewer, they would just say, oh, that was probably made up by the left. And so anyways, long way of saying the guest that was on the bulwark yesterday was telling Charlie Sykes. They're like, I think they would only actually believe this stuff and it would change their minds if there was like a video, like an actual video of Tucker Carlson, like saying, these are good people. We, we can't, you know, I can't believe they're believing this. And Laura Ingram saying this is all bullshit and blah, blah, blah. You would need a video. We don't have a video. I think that just shows how Fox News has um, kind of primed their viewers to believe this stuff. And maybe in a sense, we're kind of past the point of no return, as depressing as that might sound. But anyways, so we had these revelations, right? And now there's some other ones where it's Jonathan Swan from Axios who I think summarized this best. He basically said the House of Representatives led by Kevin McCarthy have basically just outsourced the investigation and outsourced the information to Tucker Carlson of Fox News. And what I mean here is that The Guardian discusses how this came out a few days ago in quotes, top Democrats in Washington cried foul after Kevin McCarthy released more than 40,000 hours of surveillance footage from the January 6th U.S. Capitol attack to Tucker Carlson, the far-right Fox News host, who has constantly downplayed the deadly riot. And so it kind of makes sense. So, you know, we had these investigations, right? We had the January 6th committee, which is now obviously not occurring anymore, and it sounds like Kevin McCarthy's just saying we're going to outsource all of this to Fox News, which basically does run the GOP at this point. And it's kind of troubling to me. Uh, again, it's not really surprising because it seems like Kevin McCarthy is just going like, hey, Tucker Carlson's like the go-to guy for us. I want to be in his good graces. So here, Tucker, take the information we have, right? It's really showing to me again that Fox News is just an arm. Or I, I mean, I actually... 
maybe you could even say the GOP is just an arm of Fox News. Uh, it, it used to be that the GOP would kind of direct what Fox News would say on the air, right? Kind of like, I mean, a lot of political media. But now it seems like Fox News kind of dictates what the GOP does. And this just shows how Kevin McCarthy felt obligated to do that. And when he was criticized today about this, or maybe it was yesterday. Yeah, I think it was yesterday. When he was criticized about this, he said, well, I promised. It's like, geez, what a weak man. But anyways, like the ramifications of this are serious because I think it was Chuck Schumer who said it best. He said that, in quotes, McCarthy's decision poses grave security risks and needlessly exposes the Capitol complex to one of the worst risks since 9-11. There was another thing Schumer said here, if I can find it. Um, pardon me a second. Schumer... Ah, Schumer also said, giving someone as dis disingenuous as Tucker Carlson exclusive access to this type of sensitive information is a grave mistake made by Speaker Kevin McCarthy. It will only embolden supporters of the big lie and weaken faith in our democracy. I absolutely agree. And I think the craziest part of this entire fiasco is that the New York Times, I guess, talked to Kevin McCarthy. And like I said, he said he promised, but also apparently he promised to do this as part of that deal making where, you know, he lost all of his masculinity left when he promised the far right some concessions in order to become speaker. And apparently one of the promises was to release this footage to Tucker Carlson. Now, I'm not sure if it was specifically to Tucker Carlson. I'm assuming it was because that's what they're doing. But that was part of the concessions he made. And... I think the bigger picture here is that a lot of Republicans know that they need to stay on good terms with Fox News. Not the Brett Bayers, not, not the Cavuto type of people, Neil Cavuto type of people. They need to stay on good terms with like the Tucker Carlson's and the Sean Hannity's and the Laura Ingram's, right? They don't want to fall out of grace with the propaganda network. And basically... I read John Boehner's book, On the Rocks. You know, he was the guy who was speaker during Obama's presidency. And he just got torn apart by Fox News. Michelle Bachman threats, Mark Meadows threats. Like, he was basically a casualty of the Tea Party kind of extremist movement that was growing in the GOP. And in his book, he talks about how, you know, the talking heads on Fox News really turned on him, for example. And I think what we're seeing here is that Kevin McCarthy does not want to be John Boehner, right? So he's he's scared. He's scared of Fox News. He's scared of what these people could say about him. He's scared about these people turning on him. And this guy is a weakling. At this point, he must know that everyone doesn't trust him. So at the end of the day, what does he need to do, right? And this shows me how much power Fox News has. Because again, he's basically just outsourcing all of this to a media network, which by the way, in the texts we have seen over the last week in the Dominion lawsuit, we have seen some people say about Lou Dobbs show, <laughs> I love this one, that North Korean propaganda was more, propaganda networks were more nuanced than a lot of Fox News. So that's where we're at. And going even further into this, and this is something I also just love, according to The Hill here in quotes, my Pillow CEO Mike Lindell 
says he actually plans to sue Kevin McCarthy for providing Fox News' Tucker Carlson access, exclusive access, sorry, to footage from the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Later in the article, it talks about how Lindell was on Steve Bannon's War Room, which is a fascinating podcast, by the way. And on this Thursday episode, he told Steve Bannon that his streaming platform, Lindell TV, is suing McCarthy, claiming the speaker violated the First Amendment's freedom of the press provision and the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. And Lindell basically said that Lindell TV was injured by not having access to the tapes and that the speaker's decision basically represented discrimination. (laughs) Now, usually whenever you mention the name Steve Bannon's War Room and Lindell TV next to each other in a sentence, you are never going to find me agreeing with the motives of what they're saying. And I don't in this case. But what I do probably agree with here, and take take this with a grain of salt, is that I do agree that McCarthy should not have just exclusively shared this type of information with just Tucker, who is also like a very bad actor. And of course, as I say that, I just kind of smile because it's not like Mike Lindell's a good actor either. But there is something to be said about just exclusively giving this footage to someone like Tucker Carlson. And I think, and now I don't think maybe all of this should have ever been just released to the media because both sides can spin this how they want. But since it's going to Tucker Carlson... I think the best thing to do at this point is to let also Democratic media get access to it. I'm assuming that Democrats in in Congress also have access to this, right? So can't they send like Chris Hayes some video footage or I don't know, uh, 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 60 Minutes? I, I don't know, just something like that. Like Because at this point... It's pretty clear that like Tucker Carlson is going to have yeah he has a team obviously he has a he's a high budget show he has a team that can just go through these hours these 40,000 plus hours and find footage that will help his narrative which this was just a witch hunt uh, to attack patriots because look i mean not everyone that went there that day was trying to hang make Mike Pence and i'm sure they'll look through the footage and try to do that right They'll try to find stuff that will look good for Trump and discredit January 6th. And so the only way to combat that is if other media outlets can basically fact check what Tucker said. So if Tucker shows one video of maybe people just walking through the Capitol looking lost and say, see, this is all the footage is, well, then maybe MSNBC could come out and say, well, actually, look at this other video, which shows how violent some of these people were. And yeah, this is not really putting any of the media in a good situation right now. I think it's careless of Kevin McCarthy. Again, shows to me that he should not be even near the speaker gavel. But he's there. And this relationship of Fox News and the GOP, the closeness of this relationship, really does trouble me. But that's the world we're in right now. And I am glad to see independent media keeps growing because a lot of these relics are annoying, but in Fox News's case, just dangerous towards democracy, and looks like it's just getting worse, and these revelations are troubling, but again, I wish that more of the Fox News base actually understood how bad this is, but then at the same point, I kind of wonder, like, if they're cheering on Marjorie Taylor Greene's comments, then maybe they're also okay with this, you know, there's also that to this, so it's really complicated and doesn't make me feel great. Talking about another chaotic, tragic, 
event, we could call it, happening in the United States, I figured it was time to do some updates on East Palestine and the railroad disaster that happened, geez, about three weeks ago. It's truly led to just a political circus, and it's become the focus of everything, ranging from drifters to swindlers to opportunists, and it's, it's again just showing all the fractures in our politics, in my opinion. I will also just say before I get into what's been happening, <laughs> it does seem like the Republican Party is populist by rhetoric, right? They're all talking about this issue. But then, of course, if you look at what Trump did to deregulate the industry, it's still quite a corporate party behind the closed doors. But anyways, before I get into all the drifting and grifting and all that, I first should probably get into some of the facts before we get into the politics. So first off, we learned yesterday that the initial estimate of 3,000 animals dying from this disaster was far, far from inc- from correct. And today, I believe it was, the, the Ohio Department of Natural Resources updated this number to 45,000, which is, I mean, about 15 times uh, the amount that they first originated. Now, to clarify... BBC News does write in quotes here, Mary Mertz, who directs the Ohio Department of Natural Resources, said in a news conference on Thursday that all of the 43,700 animals found dead were aquatic species, and that there is no evidence that any terrestrial animals were killed by the train's chemicals. Of course, we will find out, eventually, if there's any long-term effects for land animals, because I guess humans would classify as land animals in this case as well. But my first thought is... This must mean that there's something wrong with the water if, you know, you're just having these massive die-outs, which obviously fish, humans, different. Like, they're going to respond differently to toxins, but still, like, 45,000 is not great. And moving on, we also learned today that, that an independent analysis of the EPA data has found nine air pollutants at levels that could raise long-term health concerns. And the Washington Post has a good article on this today, and it notes in quotes, The analysis by Texas A&M University researchers seems to contradict statements by state and federal regulators that air near the crash site is safe, despite residents complaining about rashes, breathing problems, and other health effects. Examining EPA data, the researchers found elevated levels of chemicals known to trigger eye and lung irritation, headaches, and other symptoms, as well as some known or suspected to cause cancer. Later on, the report, I guess if you want to call this milquetoast news at best, it writes in quotes, the researchers said it was good news that levels of benzene and related chemicals were not elevated in the air sampling. But they said EPA measured acrolein, a hazardous substance found in smoke, at concentrations that could have long-term health effects. So, like I said, the good news is less good news because if this never happened, they wouldn't have to say that this doesn't exist in the air. So not exactly good news to me by any means. But from my understanding, this new report just practically challenges, I guess would be the right word, the EPA. The the EPA report was conducted for about 18, 17 days from February 4th to the 21st. And I guess the issue from my understanding is that it basically neglected to look at the long-term effects of some of these chemicals. There's a, there's a person named Waishu Shu, who's a professor of, of vet, veterinary uh, physiology and pharmacology at Texas A&M. 
They've said that the EPA, in quotes, would definitely want to make sure that these higher levels that are detected would be reduced before they left and declared everything cleaned up. So, like, I think what they're saying is, like, oh, they were detected early on, but they'll go away quickly or it's not enough to cause long-term harm. And it sounds like the Texas A&M study is basically saying, like, okay, right now maybe there's no cause for concern, but what if these stay at heightened levels in the atmosphere, in the water, in the air, for longer periods of time than we're expecting. That means maybe people are going to be exposed to higher levels than they should, and down the road that could cause some issues. I think that's a fair criticism of the EPA. And so now we're in this fairly complicated place where the EPA and other health organizations, universities, experts, are kind of in contrast with one another. There's kind of conflicting information. And I guess the issue for me on this is that no matter what the outcome is and no matter how dangerous these chemicals are going to be, either in the short term or the long term, people are currently reporting symptoms, including rashes, blood, bloody coughs, general feelings of being unwell, diarrhea, pretty much everything that typically if your doctor asked you if you have those every night, they would say there's something wrong. And I mean, it's really hard to know exactly, but I've listened to several reports I've read several articles, and it seems like at least half the people interviewed are reporting some of these symptoms at any given time. Now, the other issue here is that because of all the conflicting opinions, all the grifting, which I'll get into in a little bit, these people are just less likely to trust health authorities, if they have already. And of course, during the Trump era and even before, that was already on the decline. And this just seems like another thing that is going to make matters much worse. And one example I think of is the economist talked to a local resident who said in quotes here, the federal, the federal government has not stepped up. Do we just not matter because we're in the Rust Belt? This would not have happened in somewhere like Potomac, Maryland. Now, I'm less certain of what she says there at the end. I actually am. I understand like the Tucker Carlson's are all saying this is because they're poor white people and they don't care. And they only care about immigrants and white replacement and blah, blah, blah. Like, that's the narrative that the Fox News, like Tucker Carlson people are taking. I do think for sure there's a coverage bias in left-wing media. 100%. Like, yes, there's a coastal bias. Full stop. But that being said, this sounds to be more like a failure of regulation and greed from the railway industry than some isolated incident that's targeting a white Rust Belt community. And I'll get into later why I think a lot of railway experts are just shocked it hasn't happened in a bigger city yet. This was just, I think, more of a warning than anything else. The problem, though, is that it sounds like these sentiments of like, oh, you guys are ignoring us. Oh, the government doesn't care about us are quite common in East Palestine. And that's not good. But again, Flint, Michigan had a different response from Fox News than this. So I don't like the idea of saying it's some herbal, urban versus rural thing or it's because they're white. I, I don't think that's the case. I think, I think Fox News is just trying to drum this up because they know they can, right? The Economist also writes, going back to the interview with that person from a few minutes ago, in quotes, many people in the town share the feeling that they are being ignored. Anybody who voted for Donald Trump doesn't believe the government, says Tracy Ketchum, who lives just outside the town. And here, that's 71% of the population. So this is not only a tragedy, but it's a potentially a ticking time bomb. And it's also becoming a political nightmare and a circus and just 
almost an unnecessary piece of our culture war would be how I would put it. First, I think the first question that does need to be answered here is like, why did Donald Trump beat Pete Buttigieg to East Palestine? I don't think any of us think that Trump actually cares about trains or the people there. He was handing out Trump water and going to McDonald's and called the mayor of the town fat indirectly. But, I mean, the guy is kicking, and he sure has political instincts that I think are working, and another reason why I think he will be the nominee for the GOP for 2024. But I think what really fascinates me is that Pete Buttigieg is not a guy who misses interviews. He likes to talk to the press. He likes to hold events. He clearly likes attention. That's probably why he wanted to be president. Yet, he's not been around for this debacle, probably because it, you know, puts the administration a little bit in bad light. Even though, again, like I said, you could probably put some blame at Trump as well on here. But New York Magazine, I think, has a good line on this whole contrast or complication. It writes here in quotes, It is the Biden administration's flailing response through its telegenic transportation secretary that has allowed Trump to reap his political reward anyway. Pete Buttigieg is finally visiting East Palestine after taking more than a week to publicly respond to the derailment in any fashion. Buttigieg, who has already failed to heavily fine and censure the airline industry for a year of disarray, took a distressingly lax approach to the Ohio disaster in the early days. The article also implies that Buttigieg only moved up his trip to East Palestine when he heard that Trump was going there, which is not great, but which shows me I think these people are just all about the attention and the politics. But I think the article brings up a really astute point. It discusses how it's understandable that the locals are paranoid and angry. For example, we have to remember that this cleanup was lackluster. Resources were not really there. It was outsourced to a private company linked to Norfolk Southern, which was the railroad. Also, they said there were places where you could go get medical tests, but they were more just information sites than actual places to get tests. So the people were being confused on how to get help. There's reports that, <laughs> this is troubling. There's reports that the railroad was like asking if they could go in and look at people's houses to do investigations into whether there was any contamination, but the people had to sign forms. And some argue that these forms and the signatures were being created so people basically gave up their right to sue or get reimbursed. So it basically covered Norfolk Southern's asses, basically. And then there was the decision to do this controlled burning instead of maybe like not burning that all into the atmosphere. Of course, they didn't want an explosion. They didn't want some chemical failure. But I don't know, just burning a shit ton of potentially cancerous uh, chemicals into the atmosphere sounds a little scary. Also, the EPA hadn't properly set up the test to eventually, when they initially tested the water. So now there's other groups challenging its findings. And during all of this, it seems like the administration tried to help at first, but then the Ohio government under Governor DeWine seemed slow to respond. So it just seems like a giant shit show. And that's where you have the people like Trump and other opportunists showing up to fill the void. And I guess my thing is that I don't think this is directly the Biden administration's fault. It's not directly Buttigieg's fault. These are just figureheads in a vast government bureaucracy. But I think Trump almost said it best in his speech where he talked about, I know FEMA well. I, I worked with FEMA well. I, I, I know how to get FEMA there. 
And you just think like, even if Mike DeWine, there's reports that Governor DeWine didn't ask for resources. I don't know if that's 100% true, but I think Trump hits it in the nail, even if it's just rhetoric, is that, yeah, they should have sent FEMA and other resources quicker. And even even if it's not Biden's fault, you need some sort of moral support. And that seems to be kind of lacking. And now, of course, this is all politics. I've heard some people argue that Republicans are championing, championing the people of East Palestine and blaming Buttigieg just to distract from the fact that Trump overturned regulations that led to this, maybe, but I don't think so. It's probably more of this culture war that they're trying to inflame. Also, it's ironic that they now care about the EPA and environmental regulations, by the way, right? Like, they've been talking, I mean, Scott Pruitt, Trump's Trump's first EPA secretary, I mean, he wanted to gut all environmental regulations, right? So, You can't say these people are good actors or genuine actors at all. That being said, though, the Biden administration must do more. Lastly, though, I will just say that this has really become quite a political circus, which actually does not help the people of East Palestine at all. Politico Politico notes here in quotes, The partisan chaos over a February 3rd derailment has drawn politicians, national media, and a TikTok broadcaster to eastern Ohio. It hasn't eased residents' worries. The article discusses how, as Pete Buttigieg arrived, there was also a community overrun by a chaotic circus. The article writes in quotes, Donald Trump had visited the day before, offering pallets of Trump water and seeking to energize his 2024 campaign. A producer for Sean Hannity was in town later Thursday, buttonholing locals during happy hour at the original Roadhouse. Productive, right? It continues, Rudy Giuliani was in town (laughs) for some reason. (laughs) I should just note that whenever Rudy, jo- Rudy Giuliani shows up for some reason, <laughs> you know there's trouble, right? Honestly, though, why is he there? That's what I'm really curious about. But anyways, of course, the bigger issue here is that all of these people are just there for political reasons, selfish reasons, not actual reasons to maybe make sure this doesn't happen again. I don't think Americans realize how many train derailments, train accidents there are. This was just one that might have been worse or more covered than others, but I think we have to remember that these can be more common. And the best quote I read is from one resident, and this one's interesting to me, and I think it's sadly kind of true, not completely, but it's kind of true. The one resident says here in quotes, the only presidents I want to see are dead presidents in my wallet. They're using East Palestine like China and Russia are using Ukraine. It's a proxy war. And... I think that's a really interesting and depressing point about how this country deals with these type of issues. This does almost seem like a proxy war, a finger-pointing gesture, and I guess at the end of the day, I, I wanted to do this podcast because I, I, I don't like these type of things. And I guess it is true. is like the left is just saying, well, this wouldn't have happened if Trump hadn't have, you know, overturned regulations, which might be true. And the right is saying maybe Biden and Buttigieg should have come here before Biden went to Ukraine. Maybe that's true as well. But the problem is, is that there's still people coughing, sneezing, getting rashes, coughing up blood. And instead, we just have this proxy war. And anyways, going full circle back, there's this guy, Ian Nash, who's a former safety inspector on Canadian Railways. And he has a worrying quote that I will leave this section on. He says that he worries about the future. 
And The Economist interviewed him, and it writes here in quotes, In recent years, profits on the railways have soared, as firms have reduced their headcount and increased the length of trains. With railway safety, you have got to have a continual chronic sense of unease, he says, because even if overall safety is improving, the next disaster might happen somewhere more densely populated than East Palestine. And, I mean, that's why I don't think this is not being covered as much just because it's in Ohio. Because I think it actually is being covered quite a lot. And but there's a good point. Like, if, if there was a derailment like this in a more metropolitan area, and it could just due to the apparently unsafe nature of our, our railway system, it'd be a mess. Anyways, I actually will end with something a bit lighter. Know that... <laughs> Whenever Rudy Giuliani shows up for no apparent reason, it must be a place that's a magnet for grifters, swindlers, and opportunists. Maybe by next week we will have, you know, Mike Lindell showing up with pillows to hand out. But I guess he's in this lawsuit now with Kevin McCarthy, so maybe not. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Actually, I just saw online. Apparently, Giuliani was there gathering social media content and audio for his Common Sense podcast. Apparently, he interviews people like uh, Carrie Lake and Steve Bannon on there. <laughs> I'm going to have to listen to the Rudy Giuliani Common Sense podcast, actually, though. That sounds quite amazing. Quite amazing. So, anyways, uh, if you're in a place that's getting hit by weather, please stay safe. And if you have to drive, um, bring supplies, be prepared for long delays, and make sure to download Rudy Giuliani's Common Sense podcast before you go out there. Anyways, I'm kidding. Please don't cancel me for that. So anyways, have a good weekend. Take care. Alex Kapitko out. You can find me on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, all that jazz. Ciao.